So you can visualize two opposing characters, guardian angel, devil on your shoulder. What behaviors or thought patterns feed that negative thing? Because this is a system, right? You're just like, all right, it's, I got broccoli and I've got McDonald's. Which one is getting more fed in the two? So it's a really simple mental paradigm for you to start to ask the question of like, what is driving the negative outcomes in your life? Welcome to the Heroic Minds Podcast, where we discover how to get out of our own way, unleash the full capability of our mind, become the hero of our story, and a hero for other people. From an evolutionary perspective, we've evolved to manage threatening encounters. I do everything in my ability to help them, but they make the call. We have to do it in a way that doesn't just assume that going faster is going to be the cure-all. When you suffer, and then you come out of it on the other side, you stand a little taller, your voice doesn't shake anymore, your eyes are always up. Sorry to depress you guys. Self-doubt is par for the course. It's just how you choose to deal with them, react to them, or not react to them. Uh, a little tough love goes a long way and high expectation also goes a long way. But the more you expect of someone, the more they'll do. I have to keep moving forward. No good comes from going back. I don't need red tape. I'm not into rules. I'm not into regulation. I'm just going to do this. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Podcast. On today's episode, we have Ben Switzer. Ben is a disruption architect, community accelerator, and technological storyteller. He is an entrepreneur in the health technology and virtual reality space with his present companies, XR Studios and True Focus. Ben and I crossed paths because we're both doing similar things in the behavioral health space. And most importantly, is that we're both utilizing the hero's journey to do so. This episode is a dive into the connection between imagination and these stepping stones to achieve one's tactical and behavioral goals. Further, this this episode is about the cognitive process, reflecting on one's behavior and the behavior specifically that can lead to catalytical change in your life. And it comes up in this episode specifically, the idea we've talked about of, of emptying your pot because that pot continues to boil and boil and boil. And once it boils over, we have these issues or maladaptive behaviors. So it's actually flipping this idea on its head and saying, where can we find that catalytical change, but in a positive way? How can we fill that pot with positive experiences that can then lead to positive catalytical change in one's life? We even talk about determining what is driving the negative behaviors in your life, which you just heard in the intro. And last but not least, the incredible idea of tying the difficult tasks in life that that we don't want to do. You know, I don't don't think there ever really is a perfect dream job. There's, There's things we enjoy doing, but within each job, there is difficult things that we probably don't enjoy as much as other aspects. So how do we tie those difficult tasks in our life to the greater future vision and embody it in those immediate tasks, in the immediate action within things that we may not be quite as fond of, but are part of the journey. So how do we tie those two things together, the the future vision and embody it in the present moment to make those difficult tasks bearable or maybe even exciting? So yes, we've got an action-packed, philosophical, psychological, and even technological episode for you today. But before we jump into this headfirst, we have to give a shout out to our friends at True Local and also our friends at Matrix Fitness Canada. So our friends at True Local, everyone I think that's listened to this podcast before already knows how highly I think of True Local. But for those that don't, it's high quality meat, locally sourced, individually packaged, and it shows up to your doorstep. And now you also have the option to order frozen fruit and frozen vegetables as well. You decide what interval you want this stuff to show up at. No hidden fees, no cancellation fees, none of that. It's all straightforward, incredible service. I've heard nothing but, you know what? The best thing I hear is that their product is just as good as their customer service. Their customer service is amazing. If you have any issues with anything, they are top notch. They even go as far as putting a handwritten note in every box that is ordered. Even with the growing number of of customers, they've continued to keep this going. I think it's awesome. Check out their website. They have so many options and the options continue to grow. So Obviously, things are going in the right direction with True Local, and I encourage you to check them out. Give them a try. 
I do, and I love it. The product's absolutely amazing. So that's truelocal.ca. If you want to give them a try for the first time, use my discount code HEROICMINDS25, all capital letters, to get $25 off a regular size box and $10 off a personal size box. And now our friends over at Matrix Fitness Canada, this is just me wanting to share the incredible interaction I had with an individual that also happens to be a listener of the Heroic Minds podcast. So we know he's an awesome guy then, right? So anyways, I, I was lucky enough to cross paths with Greg. I was in the market for a rower for the condo here, and I am so glad we went with the Matrix rower and I can go in to talk about how absolutely incredible it is and how quiet it is and how little room it takes up, but I'm not going to do that. I want to talk about what Greg said that I wanted to share with everyone. And he said this was before the vaccine had arrived, but even still, I don't think a lot of us will have access to that vaccine until the people that need it first receive it, of course. So he said the only vaccine we have right now is fitness. And I just loved that approach such a heroic view of, okay, if we don't have the vaccine, we're limited with what we can do. Why not look up, aim up as the hero does? And we use the tools. Sometimes we have to get creative, but we look around for opportunities. We look around for tools to improve our situation. And that's what the hero does. And I loved what Greg said, that our only vaccine right now is fitness. I think it's a healthy approach. I think it's a, a, an, awesome, an awesome line. And I hope you share it with others. So if anyone else is looking for some equipment for their space, bike, treadmill, rower, whatever it may be, something little, something big, uh, I encourage you to check out Matrix Fitness Canada. All right, enough from me. Let's hop into this episode. Here we go. I think hopping right back into where we left off last week would be your role is, what is it you're trying to do in, in the world? Because I look on your website and your mission statement isn't, isn't something little. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think like... I do my pro bono work and my community work, which is volunteering my time to teach principles of neurohacking to young people or people who are in a bad situation and just need help. Um, mental health is kind of the center of my world. Uh, I've been trying to have an impact on that for a while as a consequence of having some lived experience in that area and knowing what it feels like to have PTSD and depression and a brain injury. So I've been through the medical system and I just know what it's like. Um, so having had that experience, I became really motivated to provide these knowledge-based tools for people to use. And so my mission as it concerns that work is making that knowledge as accessible and widely available as possible. I. I believe kind of in like an ikigai sort of you have to have a whole a holistic view of the person and yourself and try to pursue all of the spider graph areas of uh, what you need to thrive. Uh, so that's kind of that aspect of my work. And on the professional side, I'm co-founder of a technology company and we focus on kind of a broad number of areas, but for the most part, visual technologies. So virtual reality, augmented reality, as applied to different social impact areas and in the entertainment space. So, you know, we do everything from like uh, product cinematography and like advertising, uh, like, um, like commercials and stuff like that to like immersive marketing where it's like an augmented reality showcase of a product or we've done um, like digital conservation projects. So we, we've 3D scanned the Joshua tree uh, in California, uh, for the, which is a site where U2 had sort of established that was going to be the title of their album. And it's this, a sort of a place of pilgrimage for lots of fans who come from around the world. They leave these beautiful offerings there, like guitars and poetry and all this stuff. Um, and uh, it's sad, actually, that the site was vandalized and raided uh, recently, and a lot of those effects were stolen. So it was, um, it was good timing for us to go down there and preserve that because we captured it as it will probably never be again. Um, so we're interested in doing those kinds of works that augment the cultural and artistic fabric of society as well as creating very advanced technologies that 
solve a social problem. So right now our focus is actually on tourism and small business. So we created like a Pokemon Go for local exploration using augmented reality. Uh, so, you know, if you're in downtown London, you can experience like a crazy octopus mural just come to life and pop out at you. Uh, and, you know, we've been doing that for the past year since the pandemic. And then we're also developing technology for mental health, um, working with Western University and a few other folks in the technology community. So I kind of try, I try to strike a balance between I mostly focus, focus on tech uh, because it's, it's one of those things, though, it's like a very long term strategy with a super high impact but very little immediate feedback. So it's not like when I'm working one-on-one -on -one with a kid or with a person, I'm getting always constant feedback on how they're doing. And that gives me motivation and happiness to see my impact manifested immediately. Whereas technology, it's like, I'm going to work like a dog for three years straight, just be so hungry and tired all the time. <laughs> and then boom, all of a sudden you've got impact. So it's a different, it's like two different time scales are happening. So before we dive into that side of, of bridging together augmented reality, virtual reality, tech, and, and human behavior, I think we could start at your, your lived experience just briefly that's, that's led you into this space. You talked about head injury, you talked about depression and PTSD. What were those experiences like and, and how do you think, you know, that connects to tech augmented reality. How, where is that connection? Is it possible? Because when you and I chatted the other day, it's very much a, uh, not esoteric, but I think subjective, so subjective and human uh, conversation that is it possible to bring tech into it? And is that, is that a sustainable model? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I think it, it leads in nicely. Um, I think my first, I, this is an important one to tell, my first experience of mental ill health was in high school. I was in grade 10 and I experienced a bout of depression. Uh, and it was as a consequence of not making the basketball team. And I was so disappointed uh, that it actually triggered this depressive state. And I had never experienced anything like that. And what was really striking for me at that age was I had never heard the word depression before. So I didn't know what was happening to me. Um, I just knew what it felt like. And it was overwhelmingly negative emotion. Um, like anyone who's experienced depression can understand what that's like. And that was kind of my first indication that something was wrong, um, both kind of in myself and also in this world around me that I could not know that that was a possibility for me as a young person to experience that. And that was kind of like, you know, you're seeing stigma, you're seeing a lack of education. Uh, and I sort of was a victim of that lack of education and stigma in that moment. And then it was, that was kind of the beginning of a journey of trying to understand my own mind. And I think it's probably the case that I'm more susceptible. You know, I might be considered to be at risk. Maybe it's genetic. I don't know. I've never been tested for any, like uh, any genes associated, but I've had struggles with mental illness my whole life. You know, from, I was diagnosed with bipolar, uh, adult ADHD. And that was, you know, that was if nothing extraordinary had happened outside those circumstances. Um, I think a lot of people are, are kind of in that position of disadvantage and may not even know it. Um, and I think it's the case that like, for me, once I learned the right tools, I'm able to function. Uh, but it's just, it's just a question of finding those tools and I was able to do that because I was extremely motivated and curious. And that makes me somewhat of an outlier as a case against a lot of these other young people who like depression kills your motivation. So, I mean, there's like, obviously that's not the path of least resistance to, to health. So that was my experience in high school. And then I got into university and I was balancing out. Things were, things were going well, actually. Um, I was starting to connect with my intellect and I was really enjoying school, studying creative writing and history, actually. I wanted to be a science fiction writer. I still do write some sci-fi. Um, in any case, um, that was where my brain injury difficulty started. Uh, I was 
bit by a tick while I was camping uh, with some friends in Tobamori and I got Lyme disease and I was co-infected. And uh, if you don't know what co-infections are with Lyme disease, oftentimes the tick will deliver a payload of multiple bacterial or viral infections simultaneously. And they work in symbiosis to attack your body. So for me, there was a co-infection called babesiosis that would attack my immune system. So then the Lyme could spread faster. And then the Lyme would basically overwhelm the immune system so the babesiosis could then spread more quickly. And so they kind of work in parallel, which is kind of a, uh, a dark alliance against my body. <laughs> so I, that was tough because it, in particular at that time, there was stigma against diagnosis for Lyme disease. Doctors were losing their licenses for diagnosing and treating it. And people were getting better from these treatments. And so I had not received a diagnosis for six or seven years after the time of my infection. Um, and it was sort of this, it was this process of increasing illness that was kind of, it would go gradually and then sort of increase uh, to a new plateau and then it would go gradually and then it would jump again. So it's like, and I was training for a marathon and I love to run. I was an athlete, played volleyball. And it was like, all of a sudden I had arthritis. I was like, why do I now have arthritis at 21 years old when, you know, I've been running 20, 30 kilometers with no pain for years. And so now I'm going to see all kinds of specialists and getting crazy diagnosis. They're putting me on all kinds of different drugs and trying things out. Nothing's working, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, um, I came out of that experience sort of like traumatized by my own body because you, you start to see your body as an enemy because it's hurting you. Like you're experiencing pain all the time. And this is, I think this is the case with a lot of people who have chronic illnesses and chronic pain is they've learned to compartmentalize their body away from their mind so that they can escape, they can escape mm -hmm. the pain. And so it caused a kind of disembodiment psychologically for me that made it difficult for me to enjoy life, to connect with those experiences. And so because of my history of depression, like those two things became like swirled up in this problem that was only getting worse. And I was lucky enough that I, you know, I come from a family of privilege and I had a lot of support and I was able to reach the right medical practitioners to get an experimental treatment. And the treatment was successful, but I still had the brain damage to deal with. Um, and at the same time, you know, I had been diagnosed with PTSD because of a, tra a trauma that I experienced in my family. And so it was this really crazy period of my life where I was a young person living in an extremely old person's body and like going through these phases of tragedy and, and difficulty that had such profound consequences on my mind. And at the same time, having this imagination where I wanted to create these incredible stories of a futuristic world of a better world to create archetypes of heroic um, self-actualization in my characters and like describe artificial intelligences that you know, could help us guide us to a better future or trying to destroy us. And I was very passionate about this, right? And I was committed to seeing it through. And I knew that there's no way a brain injured, depressed, traumatized version of myself was ever going to be able to achieve uh, those goals. Cause I couldn't write, you know, you get. So you're saying from that point, like that, there's a pivotal moment right there that you're getting to in this, in your journey, in your story. And the only reason I interject is because this is, this is the moment like you're, you're coming to the rising action right now, the catalytical moment where it's, do I come to terms with and accept without action? This is how it's going to be. Now I'll act in the way that, Hey, I'm, I'm stuck in this. I won't be able to write. I won't be able to find that motivation or curiosity that you said was, mm -hmm. was actually the key out of this situation. So, yeah, I mean, I think you were about to jump into it, but that, it's important to pause here because this is where something happened that allowed you to ultimately harness that motivation and curiosity. And was it the curiosity that brought motivation? Was it, how did that, how, yeah, where did things 
play out? That's a really interesting question. I don't know that I've ever broken it down to that level. Um, I think it was a mix of things. Like there was a sense of urgency and danger. Like I had a sense that if I didn't act, I was going to die. Um, and that, and I almost did. I had multiple near death experiences during that time that really broke down my ego, uh, quite a bit. Cause I was, you know, frankly, I was a dick when I was younger and, you know, like not 18, 19 years old, you're like a teenager, you're kind of an idiot, you know, selfish, all those things. And like, for me, again, I came from privilege. So, you know, I, my thought my life was going to be handed to me. Like it was obvious that I was going to have a good life. Right. Um, it, it would never have dawned on me that I was going to have to go through that process and w- which was kind of interesting. So it kind of like burned away the, some of the negative parts of my personality. And I was able to sort of step back from the system and look at myself as a human being and ask, well, all right, if I'm going to heal my body, heal my mind, like why, like what kind of person do I want to be? And I hadn't really asked those questions. I, I love how fascinating I have this conversation all the time with a friend and we're trying to articulate, you know, one of the, the shortcuts to what you're talking about, the shortcuts to, you could say, you could word it as shedding off the fat of, of parts of you that you don't like that. Unfortunately, the shortcut could be trauma. And, and we see that many times, right? We, I think we could all, we could all name someone in our lives. We've actually watched and seen the process occur and I find that part fascinating how you said, you know, you grow up, you don't have a worry in the world thinking, oh, things are going to work out. Like this is no, it's no problem. You can even talk down to some people and, and you're still going to be okay because of where, where you're at. And you don't really see, this is where that whole self-actualization thing comes in, where you don't even really see those things as flaws. It's kind of the fishbowl analogy. You're in your own world looking outward, but once you got to get outside that fishbowl and look at you. And I mean, I do that with with who I was as a hockey player versus who I am now, I do that again, that experience. And you have to work through quite a bit. So I, I that's so interesting hearing it that way, that it would, that trauma, that's what that trauma does for a split second is it puts a mirror in front of your face and you're like, wait a second. I don't like that part of me. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think it's this interesting phenomena of the epiphany and the, and the epiphany as it exists in human mind is is fascinating because it can cause this transformative change where it's almost like the source code of your perception is fundamentally changing from the bottom up as perception is even the way and okay so this is really cool i had this experience um when i went through emdr therapy uh for my ptsd so i went through five or six sessions of this and this is an example of this bottom-up perception shift idea So I noticed that after the fourth or fifth session that I had a qualitative shift in how I was feeling. And so I had this profound emotional release. Like I had like tears of joy. And then it was like the color on the world, like a knob just got turned way up. And my visual system, like I could see it ramping up from literally from the bottom of my vision to the top. And I was like, whoa. I had no idea that the world was this vibrant. And, and so can you go into the details on that therapy? Because for those, you, you know, you're talking about the visual field now, and it'd be, I think, cool for listeners to hear how that process works and what it does. Yeah. So that's really interesting too, because it, it does involve the visual field. So EMDR is called eye movement, uh, desensitization and reprocessing. Uh, and it has to do with a technique where you're, using your imagination to conjure a traumatic experience or event. And then you're recontextualizing that event through repetitiously sort of like creating a new narrative around it. And so you're doing things like challenging language, which is kind of similar to cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's very experiential. It's not like, it's not like neuro-linguistic programming style where you're just changing words like you're engaging your imagination and changing the memory. And, the, and part of that is through repeated stimulation and reinforcement. So it's a learning paradigm. So you do this multiple, multiple times until it's like, whoa, I have a new, the neuro pathway for experiencing my trauma is now shifted to the path of least resistance being acceptance instead of guilt or being um, safety instead of fear, let's say. 
And it's really, it's really a powerful, powerful technique. And it works partly based on the intensity of the human imagination. But this is the part that's kind of mysterious. Uh, and it has to do with this thing ca called bilateral stimulation. And so once the reprocessing happens, there is essentially a, a stimuli that's put across the eyes like this. And it because it engages both hemispheres through the occipital, the, the signals are coming in and they're having to unify, unify through both uh, hemispheres of the brain. It's almost causing this harmonizing effect. And, and I want to I compare it to, um, to like neuroplasticity. If you hear about people who get like a brain injury in a certain area, and then like other areas will grow over it. Or you'll hear about people that are like uh, blind, congenitally blind, and they'll have like enhanced sensory perception in other areas. I almost want to say it's something like that. I don't fully understand the mechanism, but it was extraordinarily successful for me. I, I can tell you that the, uh, the origin story of EMDR, so, it is, so it's told, is the, the inventor, who I can't, I can't recall her name, but she was walking, she had been through a traumatic experience and was walking through this path for which there's two lines of trees. And the way that the trees were engaging her eyes back and forth, for some reason had produced this like calming effect. And so she went on to study that and that's how it became this technique. I love it, I love it. I've been through every type of therapy, uh, more or less, except for hypno hypnotherapy. Um, and I found it to be tremendously successful. The studies show it's, it's as effective or better than CBT or, or other psychotherapeutic modalities. So for anyone out there who's curious about uh, trauma and therapy, I do recommend uh, EMDR personally. Fascinating. I, I do need to look at, that's one thing I want to learn more about is the hypnotherapy approach, because I don't understand much about it out of the gates. That said, as, as you alluded to, there's strong research behind it. And, and I think it's a growing field as is psychedelics right now. And I, and I, that pops up on my social media all the time because of the, the stuff I follow in regards to head injuries and mental health. Mm -hmm. So apparently those are becoming quite the, quite the modality or tool to use. Now you, I wrote down three different words because they seem like the, that you've said, these are words that you've said so far. They seem like words that you've used and it, like experienced through your journey as stepping stones out of the place you were to where you wanted to get to and who you wanted to be. And, and epiphany is one, curiosity is the other, and imagination is the other. <laughs> I love and it. So, so it, it makes it like it begs the question, as, as I've had lots of people on this podcast talking about their journeys from one place to, a, a, a let's say, a greater place in, the, in this heroic journey. I've never realized so much until you've been, been speaking today about the, the power of curiosity or, or imagination or an epiphany, a dream, whatever you want to call it, that could be a stepping stone when you see nothing. Mm -hmm. So, cause none of those are really baked into reality. Any of those things are, are rational and concrete reality. They're actually ideas in your mind that are fabricated that you kind of make that stepping stone yourself, if, if that's one way to word it, which I find fascinating. And, and I know we're still going in your journey here. So where did those three ideas play into you ultimately moving out of that space into to where you are today and, and how I guess it keeps you going even? Well, it's interesting. Um, from, from a curiosity standpoint, it's like I couldn't help myself. I was so interested in science, even though I was studying literature, that it became a leisure for me to read papers and publications. So as much as I would love to say that I was like, had extraordinary willpower and motivation, and that was like the key, part of it was I was simply interested in the thing that I happened to need at the time that I needed it. So there was some synchronicity involved. And I do, I do have a, I do have a little bit of um, a spiritual sense, and that, you know, I was intensely focused on this stuff that was, for all intents and purposes, useless to me. Like, why would I ever study like quantum mechanics or meditation or or neuroscience if I'm like, 
you know, I was going to end up in sales. Like, let's be honest. <laughs> and I did, <laughs> but I think, so I think there's like, there's something very interesting about interest itself. We don't always know why we're attracted to things or people or ideas, but I think it's like, it's a matter of recognizing where that interest is by trying a bunch of different things and then just letting yourself be interested and not controlling too much. I think that's what I learned was like, I had these ideas of who I was supposed to be. And then I realized I can, it's not about who I am. It's about what I do or what I like and what I'm interested in. And I think the second part around the epiphany, now this was like a crazy journey for me because I went like 10 levels deep on the epiphany and what is it? Like, what is this phenomena? Like what's the phenomenology of epiphany both in the human mind, but in like all systems in the universe. So if you look at like what is happening when an epiphany happens, it's some stimulus, which is, which is exogenous or it's internal is, is catalyzing a cascade effect of psychological changes that transforms the bottom up perceptual layers of the brain. So the way you see the world and the way you behave on the world as a consequence changes because there's this process like, and even in CBT, right? So there's like, there's this triad of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And the idea is if you modify your thoughts and feelings, your behaviors are emergent and your behavior is going to change essentially. So from that sort of idea, I was having these epiphanies like all the time and of different sizes. So like I would realize something cool intellectually and it would be like, whoa, like the first time I completed a, a force diagram in physics, and this is just grade 11 physics. I was like, holy crap, I can look at a car now and I see all of these forces interacting on the car in this way that I can imagine. And to me, it's like it opened up a whole new world. Uh, so the way I've seen the world is changing. And then I think from the emotional perspective, and this is where trauma comes in, sometimes systems need to be jangled in order for that epiphany to happen. And it's almost like you're increasing the energy on the system. And one of the analogies that I like uh, is, let's say you have a table, right? And you're going to start uh, placing bricks on the table more and more and more. And you'll realize like nothing will happen for a while, but then you'll reach a certain critical threshold of energy on that system, the table will break. And this, and you can take this idea of breaking and go way into even like quantum physics, like symmetry breaking. So there has to be some catalyst in the system that is shifting its entire structure in one moment. And that's, that's the interesting thing too. It's momentary. Like when it happens, it goes boom. Like well, that like, can happen on a positive and negative side then. Yeah. For sure. It makes me think of the, the, uh, an analogy I use is the pot boiling over. That's your, your threshold of what you can handle unless you take time to empty that pot, which is a very simplified version of what you're talking about. But I've never turned it on its head and said, that's also, a, it could be a positive. You can look at it in a positive way as well when you have that epiphany. And you would, you would have seen this. You stack enough of those, of those positive things and people's lives can change. And like they have, and sometimes this can accompany like a mystical experience almost. Cause they're like, wow, like I, it's like, I'm born again. But you know, as, as a scientist, you can go and break down all the components of that epiphany as factors in, in, in how that happens. And this is like a complex systems theory view of like nonlinear changes, basically. This process can happen without it materializing in real life but could exist in imagination or creativity yeah like i i think it's like almost like a fundamental law of nature that the epiphany exists outside the human experience and like at levels below like from the atomic and it scales up so what we're experiencing psychologically is a fractal of of some more fundamental truth about how things change and evolve and, and once we understand that process, once we realize that this is something true in our nature, then we can hack it. Then it's like, all right, now what are the factors that can build to an epiphany? And can I give myself the greatest advantage by manipulating 
the system and introducing more of those factors. And so how would you suggest people in an application approach, someone listening right now, if they're like, hey, I wouldn't mind, maybe I don't totally understand these esoteric concepts that, that Ben's feeding us right now, but I like, I like where he's going and I want to apply this to my life. How would you recommend in a simple process that someone may be able to do their own self work in this, in this area? I like a really simple analogy and I, I can, I use this for uh, the kids I work with. Um, so it, it's easy to understand. So you can visualize um, two opposing characters, guardian angel, devil on your shoulder, black dragon, gold dragon. The whole point is one is you're conceptualizing as, as bad and the other is good. And what does that mean? It means like you're bad and you're good. And you're essentially asking yourself what behaviors or thought patterns uh, feed that negative thing and make it stronger and bigger. And what behaviors, thoughts, inputs, because this is a system, right? You're just like, all right, it's, I got broccoli and I've got McDonald's. Okay. Which one, which one is getting more fed in the two? So it's a really simple mental paradigm for you to start to ask the question of like, what is driving the negative outcomes in your life? And then once you start to think that way, you're developing mindfulness around it. You'll start to be able to intervene more strategically. And then, and this is the case when I work with clients, they'll do this for like three or four weeks. And they're like, they're like, yeah, you know, I'm not really sure I'm getting like results. And then they'll have that epiphany. And it's like, and then they're like completely different. And it's, it's really interesting. And then you get addicted to the process because it can be fun too, especially when you're creating a narrative of heroism, like you're going to slay this dragon uh, essentially. And every, you know, attack you do on it is reducing some negative input, like a negative self-talk loop, like saying that you're, that you're not talented or you're stupid or you'll never be happy. Like those words are attacks on your best self that you get to challenge if you know how. I, that's so cool how it ties back into the hero's journey on on both levels, the literal level and also the metaphorical level too, because as we both know, often one difficult journey in the heroes in, in, its own, in itself is letting part of you die off to awaken another part of you and experience another part of you that you haven't experienced yet. The connection, I think we're getting there really as we presently, but where did that motivation come in or was it even ever an issue? And in the episode ago, we talked about motivation as people thinking it should come first. Motivation should arise and then I can act on what I need to do to get done. But really, we, we, we know that's not true. And I think you're clearly stating that right now. So for you, was motivation ever an issue? Because you brought it up very early on. Again, you, you, you know, depression, one of the biggest issues is that lack of motivation. I think even anxiety, you have you're so worried about the future that you're, you don't have the motivation to act. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think it ties in a lot to what you often talk about, which is the why, um, like what's the reason you're getting out of bed. And there were years where I didn't get out of bed uh, because I didn't have a purpose that I could see, or at least I never thought that I'd be able to cross the chasm of my illness to get to a place where I wanted to be where I wanted to have these successes. And in fact, in those times, just imagining a better life was actually a painful experience because I truly believed it was impossible, that it was never going to happen to me. And so in those times when I did fantasize, like, yes, I'm going to write a great book or I'm going to start a business. It's like, no, actually, you can never do that. Like you can barely live. So why would well, you- It was a bit of that incongruent, the union incongruence coming in where- you're so far separated from who you want to be that it was painful to then resort back to where you actually are and think, and it just makes the, it's a confounding variable then that just makes things worse. Yeah. And I think what I, what I learned was that I needed to have set shorter goals and start to build up towards that with some small achievements that I could feel gratified and then also be satisfied. Like I came to accept that I was like, I probably won't write a great novel. And I'm like, that's okay. I'll just be, it'll be fine if I just live and I've got a nice family that loves me 
And, you know, I'm able to at least be content to a certain degree, be healthy. Uh, and once you kind of accept, and that's part of this like equanimity of it that I think is important, because if you put too much attachment on your fantasies, then it, it becomes more of an addiction rather so how, than a true pursuit. Okay. How would you, I love that. Okay. So how would you articulate that then on, a, on how much should we focus on that? long-term ideal and and not focus on it what, what would that look like i think it's like okay this is something in it that i only recently learned in the last three years um, and this was particularly as a consequence of entrepreneurship because when you start your own company there's a lot of painful boring shitty tasks that you have to do that you're not good at you actually suck at them quite badly um, and you have to just keep doing them, keep doing them, keep doing them. Cause if you don't, the whole thing falls apart and it won't work. Like those components must be in place either by you doing it or someone else doing it. And if you can't do it, then you got to pay them. So you better go get, find money. And so it causes like all of these different complexities of stuff you don't want to do. I would love to just sit around and talk about mental illness and vision all day and, and be the charismatic guy who's getting everyone pumped but that's not a business, you know, uh, that that's not what gets it done. And so I, you have to take the future vision and embody it in the immediate action that you're doing. And so it became, I am sweeping this floor. Like, I, and this is literally the case. Like I would be bringing, <laughs> bringing beers to people experiencing virtual reality and like hosting kids birthday parties in order to bring about a future of transformative uh, mental health technology, those two things were, were connected because it was part of the business. It was an important thing. I didn't want to do it. It's not my favorite thing to do, but I knew that it was important enough that it was going to have an impact on that. And so as I was doing it, I would pump myself up to be like, this does have importance. This does have meaning. And then it became more of a fun task. What an incredible way to bring you into the present moment rather than all these other convoluted things you hear today on how to be in the present moment. I would even say that approach sounds less of, it would be less of a challenge to be in the present moment that way, driven by meaning and purpose for something greater than to practice your mindfulness to almost in a way rationalize yourself into the present moment. Yeah. And I think you, I think you do need a little bit of that. Like there needs to be a sense of um, that you can enjoy almost anything and be content. That's that equanimity that takes practice. Like it, it's a discipline, right? So mm -hmm. there's, there's like, you know, the act of focus on sweeping where it's like, I'm going to notice my hands. I'm going to notice the floor, the sound, all of these things. And like be totally in the present moment, which is like, it, it can make it a more enjoyable task for sure. Washing the dishes is another one. Most people hate it, but if you really focus on the details, it's actually quite enjoyable. Like mm -hmm. it's warm, you know, you, the thing is dirty and then it's clean. It's kind of satisfying. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's me vacuuming. <laughs> it is. It's almost an addiction. Like I've I, the battery doesn't charge long enough. Jeez. The amount I want to vacuum. I, I totally hear you. It's, it, it reminds me of a similar conversation I had on the podcast, uh, months ago with an individual named Sam Chase. And he, the way he coined it was a, a dance between those two areas, that, that really present, present moment versus that long-term or another time and space that is of value for us to, to have thoughts about because we're these, you know, time binding animals. Yeah. And I, I and I want to continue a little bit on time um, because, because this is, this is something that has been so powerful for me and, and for the people that I coach too. And it's this idea of like, you're creating anchors in time. And those anchors in time are orienting you to some extent in the, in the present. It's almost like you have like a seesaw and you want things to be in balance. And, and EMDR is like the perfect harmonizing tool for your past so that like your unconscious traumas aren't emergently affecting your perception of behavior on the present. So as you make your adjustment on your relationship of time in the past, it's actually orienting your perception and action better in the present. 
And then it gets even more stabilized if you have a future conceptualization that's also stabilizing you into a behavioral pattern. And so people, it's like, it's too difficult for you to be constantly querying your behavior all the time. It's like, am I doing the right thing? Is, is this correct right now? Like people don't have the mental energy to do that. They usually just go through their life and like they do what they feel like they should do. And a lot of that is coming from the self, from the subconscious, the limbic system. That's really the motivational center of our being. But when you make these little adjustments in time, it can actually put you into a state of high motivation. And so I like, and this is where there's a fine balance though. Okay. So I think you'll find this is interesting. So when we imagine the future or such as uh, like when we're having a conversation in the future, so it's like, you know, when you're like pissed off at someone, you're like, I'm going to let them have it. <laughs> and you're having the whole conversation. So that engages the default mode network in the brain. It becomes super active and, and you're envisioning your like language centers are active. Wernicke, Broca, all that stuff is super highly active. And it's like the opposite of the meditative state of presencing. So when you go meditation, your DMN squashes, the activity goes down and you get alpha, alpha wave uptake in the forebrain. That's like that calm, relaxed focus. So you can't be calm, relaxed, focused and be imagining the future at the same time very easily. And so for people that are like, I've had some clients that are like, yeah, I love to do like manifestation. I love vision boards. And like, when I meditate, I just think about the future and I'm like, it's good that you think about the future, but you know, if you just think about the future all the time, it actually can like upregulate your anxiety because the same networks um, that are involved are active. And so you have to strike a balance because if you're just totally lost in these fantasies of the future and all you're doing is imagining the future, then you're not going to be able to manifest it because you have to anchor all those states in time in order for that thing to pop up. And any incongruence between past, present, and future can screw that up. You put it like, I love listening to Alan Watts explain time and, and focus, but I think you just took the cake. That, that was because <laughs> he always he has that famous line and I'm going to butcher it. Something along the lines of there's no future. There'll be no future worth living if you can't live fully now. But I think within that concept of living fully now, a part of that fully involvement in the present moment has to do with the planning for the future as well. That I think is, is layered in there as, as ridiculous as that does sound. I mean, to be completely 100% in the present moment would be risky, you know, at all times without having a somewhat of a little bit of an eye for the future. So um, in this whole conversation, it makes me think of, uh, I just finished a paper in my master's on, uh, ego mechanisms, ego defense mechanisms in in athletes. I, I obviously directed the paper towards the athletic world, but in a paper, there was a, a really fascinating concept between harmonious passion and obsessive passion, hmm. and and where that reliance on the future comes in. That you have an athlete that has harmonious passion in the present moment, which is very much enjoying the process enjoying learning growth, realizing all the, it's there that, it, that athlete is realizing all the benefits of the practice and the journey towards potentially being a professional one day. And then on the flip side, there's an obsessive passion, which is doing what needs to be done because of the fear of losing or not achieving what could be. And that's, that's where the issues begin. That's where the maladaptive behaviors. And that's where I brought the paper in full circle is that that's where the ego defense mechanisms come into play and you have the vulnerability and the helplessness, which then looks into, you know, then becomes reaction formation and projection and regression and all these other things because of this obsessive now passion that you have for sport. So it begs the question. And I think this is the best way to put it is who's in control. Are you in control or is sport or not sport, whatever is, is that, that long-term goal in control of you? The, the, obviously the easy answer is we want to be in that harmonious passion state at all times, but it's not easy. It really isn't. Well, that's a, that's a fascinating topic. And I think um, one practical application I would love to see out of that research 
is like self-identifying the characteristics of what, whether you're in one state or another and like how you can train up the ability to recognize and put yourself in harmonious um, versus obsessive. So those would be the two on your shoulders. You're saying, if we bring it back to your, your approach is you have the harmonious on one shoulder and the obsessive on the other. And then you want to try and identify with that harmonious one as much as possible. It's, and I, I, I don't know if this is correct. So you'll have to give me feedback on this, but I think of like how alcoholism is defined is by function. And it's like, you know, you're, you can drink as much as you want up to the point that it starts to basically deteriorate, deteriorate your health or deteriorate your lived experience. Um, and I wonder if, if, if that's the way obsession could be defined as like, is this harming me? And how is that defined? Wow. To the point where it's done doing its job as a defense mechanism to the point where it's now causing further confounding issues. Yeah. I mean, I could do like, you're definitely more of an expert than I am on that. On the oh, topic. geez. I wouldn't call myself an expert. I'm curious <laughs> going using one of your words. I'm definitely curious. That's for sure. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's funny because, well, like I would even use my story as an example. So it wasn't alcohol. It was, it was an identity tied to a sport so much so that I went back into it after, after a catastrophic injury. Hmm. And so it's, it, you, right. You begged the question. Here's, I guess, a more, just a different example. So it's not the alcohol that, that I think is, is it's very easy to see the negative effects of it, both mentally and physically, but if another example that may not be looked at or painted with the same negative societal brush is just playing sport. But for me, that sport was something I felt that I needed that totally defined me. And so at what point, and I'd like to think in my own journey that at that point when I moved on, that was where I started to consciously, I did start to get into psychology in these conversations, but I, I think I also realized it's this, this is a moment where I think I need to move on because it's going to start to become harmful mm-hmm. in for, for a bunch of different reasons, not just physically. Uh, so I, yeah, I wonder if, if that's a something you have to be aware of again, which isn't easy when you, when you're chasing something that, that you, that appears to be extremely important to you. And it's interesting for us too, as a challenge, because we're encouraging people to discover those passions and to pursue them with with voraciousness, right? You want them to be linked to that passion because it's going to give them purpose. But then it's like, once, once you're in that direction and you're going, it's like, all right, but just, just be mindful of the potholes and like, (laughs) it is hilarious. It is, this is an absolutely fascinating conversation that we could do like another podcast on because what comes with chasing that thing and sacrifices you make. And I say thing because it's for whatever, not just sport. So many great things come of it, but then there's that pivotal point where things can become quite simply a negative part of one's life. And and I would argue that in my specific journey, and this is what I want to change in the athletic world. And I had a really cool conversation about it today with a, with a big sporting organization in the province is that I think this can change if people, if it's not a one-time conversation, because, because quite simply right now, a lot of things in the behavioral health space are reactionary, not yep. proactive. And so do we really even know And actually, I think we could. I don't know if there's research on it right now, but do we know what people that have had these conversations from six years old, making sure people are aware of what's going on, however that model looks, people are aware of this. They have the conversation. They realize their actions and their behaviors, what they lead to. And then when that time comes at 16, 17, 18, 19, whenever someone needs to move on, I would argue that they would be more aware, realizing the uh, I'm not getting the same positive return for the output. Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems obvious, uh, but uh, you know, it's, it's too bad that I think, you know, and I don't want to necessarily blame the school system because I think that's the wrong, the wrong term to use, but it's, it's the case that fostering um, self-motivational skills and emotional 
um, sort of quotient style, uh, self-perception, self-motivation, empathy, all of those things don't really have a curriculum per se. Like the curriculum is focused on knowledge acquisition, retention, skills testing, which is really important. Uh, but I think the missing piece is that is that emotional intelligence piece that's allowed at least building, like you're saying, some ability to recognize harm and what the sources of harm could be, or to have a practice of of going inward and and starting to assess feelings and thoughts. Because I've worked with a lot of kids that were like 12, 13, 14 years old. So they're on this cusp of, uh, you know, becoming young adults and they're figuring out their identity. And a lot of them have just never stopped to really reflect on their thoughts and feelings. And it's not because the, because that we should expect them to have an innate desire to do so or an innate capacity. It's a learned skill. It's either you're either taught it or you're not. And you, or you're, you're going to learn it by yourself or someone's going to teach you. And so, you know, so now mindfulness is being brought into the classroom in a major way. Uh, there's oh, a lot, yeah. of, lot of really cool pilots being done and things like that. I think it's just the first step. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of pitfalls that we can help these kids avoid if we just put in the opportunity to learn. And I actually think sport is a really interesting opportunity to do that. Like, wouldn't it be interesting if in these like intense training camps where there's a lot of, there's a lot of camaraderie, there's a lot of competitiveness. Well, there could be opportunities for coaches to show leadership and also to use the social dynamics of a hockey team, which is very like, you know, it's, it is what it is, right? Yeah, but, you can say it. You're not offending anyone. <laughs> but using the social dynamics of that system and saying, okay, who's the cool kid? Getting them bought in. Like, hey, you're going to participate in leading this. And, and understanding that that's important. Getting sociocultural buy-in is important. And that's, I think, what you're describing is like, it's well and fine for you to come in and give these kids a talk. And they're going to learn a lot from that but it's different to have massive culture change on the sport. Mm -hmm. And, and if you can accomplish that, that provides well-being in every domain of their life, not just hockey. That's yeah. That, and I think that's exactly it. Like that's what you can, you can, you can be successful without school. You can be successful without sport, but you can't be successful without the things that we always talk about on this podcast, which is that behavioral health awareness. Mm -hmm. Like that, it's so important, right? And, and needs to become more of the, the conversation. So connecting that full circle back into to where we said we were going to get to, pairing this into tech and, and augmented reality, and how, how is it that you've been able to or you foresee behavior being connected in this way? Is it possible? Well, I mean, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyways. Is it possible to connect this behavioral change with tech? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, and I think the reason there's multiple reasons. Uh, the first one being that, you know, young people are more comfortable connecting with tech than they are with other people, uh, mm -hmm. these days. And I mean, that's, it's a sad fact, but, uh, that's the world we live in now. Um, a lot of kids are being raised by iPads and YouTube, yeah. uh, because it's a babysitter, right? Um, and they spend a significant amount of time interacting with those devices such that it's changing the way their brains work. They're conforming, to the relationship with that device. And so for us, we see it, it as like, this is knowledge that needs to be retained in order for this person to thrive. Now, whether that knowledge is transferred through a teacher or let's say, you know, a curriculum or through a piece of technology, it, for me, it's like, I don't, I don't think anyone is better than the other except for who is it, how does it work for them? Like, mm -hmm. do they prefer that it's a technology? that it's impersonalized and anonymized for a lot of young kids. Yeah. That's what, that's what they want. You know, they don't like phone calls. It's like one of these interesting things. Like they don't do phone calls. They are all mm -hmm. on Snapchat or they're texting or they're uh, DMing or whatever. Um, so it's like, we need to accept that culture is changing around expectations in how we communicate and how we receive and exchange information. And so we have to meet these kids where they're at. So I think, I think that's the first point. 
Yeah, I think there's even a bit of bias thinking that that's not a way to approach the conversation. And I think I'd go back to an example I used to say is that not a behavioral health conversation between friends or someone that needs to get help doesn't have to happen in the brick and mortar counseling one chair table in the middle with a plant on it and another chair across. Like it doesn't have to, change doesn't have to happen that way. I mean, we're seeing it now with with counseling being done virtually over a, a video app, which is which is great. No different than, than even texting, right? It's not that someone has to always go see someone, right? Well, they should go see someone. Well, what does that look like in a modern day context that's right. convenient, efficient, and still gets the job done? Right. I think that's a, an interesting conversation. Yeah. And, and if you look into the, um, uh, if you look into the analysis on the impact of different components of therapy, like why does therapy work? Uh, most of the reason that therapy works is the therapeutic alliance. So it's the socialization, like we need other people. And if you look at the evolutionary history of how we process trauma um, and how we regulate negative emotion as a social group. We do like drum circles and dancing and shamanism and all these things that always have a social component, almost always, unless you're doing like a spirit journey and you're fasting and going and doing psychedelics in the forest, um, which one could argue that you're socializing with the cosmos itself. But the, but the point is like, even if you look into the, and this is cool, if you look into the neural mechanisms of uh, social learning happens in the a lot of it happens in the olfactory bulb which is responsible for smell so that same uh, system that's regulating our attraction through pheromones is also engaged when we're like in therapy learning something so it's there's something about being close to other people that allows us to through a dichotomy but even just the presence of another to regulate our own emotions. It's this really interesting feature. So for me, it's like, I would be curious to see if there's, you know, there's a number of CBT chatbots out there. I would love to see like oxytocin levels before and after interacting with these virtual beings. Um, Cause I think we're in the, it's, it's the case now that, and now I can go deep into the tech, the natural language processing and AI is getting so strong that we're probably gonna see the Turing test uh, for language-based communications get passed in the next couple of years. And so much so like, you're not going to be able to tell that that's not a human and it'll be specialized too because of the scale of, of data, because of the specificity that the architecture of the AI can change itself to match your specific means of communication. It's not going to be like one master AI that's giving therapy to millions it's going to be fractalized. It'll be a million AIs giving therapy to a million individuals and each one is specialized, very personalized. And that's sort of the future, I think, of, of um, digital therapy, so to speak. But I think it's, it's, it's not something that we can, I don't know, maybe, maybe we can. I don't think you can fully re replace a therapist uh, because it's a very complex interaction. Um, and I think, I think this is maybe a tool that therapists should consider using in addition to their practice or as a way of onboarding young people to the concept. And if they want to go deeper, then they can get that support. I think for us as a company, we're less focused on delivering therapy because we feel like, you know, therapy has for better or worse reached the limits of its ability to have an impact as it's currently formulated. So psychotherapy is good, but it's also as good as it's going to get through all the iterations uh, that it's been through. CBT is very reliable. Works, I think it works in like 55% of cases in depression, let's say, which is like, it's pretty good, but it's also kind of pretty bad because uh, that's 45% that are, that, are, that are not being helped, right? And so for us, it's like, can we create a technology that fills the gap that isn't therapy, but isn't a digital delivery of therapy either? So we're taking a totally different approach. Um, I can't go too much into the specifics. All I can say is that it's going gonna, it's gonna to make people who are beginners experts in a particular practice um, for anxiety through a visualization. 
And so it's, so that's the technology is teaching without words. It's, it's something that is usually taught with words, but it's it's taught with images instead. And so it's like, so we're able to move the knowledge into different realms of accessibility and speed and cost. Like cost is going to go way down as well. So it's like, and now Canada in the midst of the pandemic is like, we need to get these digital tools online. And they're like, all of a sudden, like, oh, I guess we should give free mental health treatment for everybody. Like, it, like that's like, that shouldn't have been done years ago. I think it's cool to hear someone bring together that tech side in the behavioral and scientific side. It's tying things up. What is, what's next on the agenda for you? What are you, what's your goal here in the next, I guess, through this pandemic, next six months, what's, what's on your table? I think my goal is to, you know, I'm going to focus on growing the company because we're doing some really good work, not just in mental health, but um, some potential for climate change uh, tech that we're doing. The tourism and small business has been growing at an extraordinary rate. Um, We're seeing lots of support and that has tangible impact too. Uh, So that's very high impact work for me that I'm going to be continuing to focus on very intensely. Uh, and then my goal is to raise half a sco- amount of the scholarship in the first six months because I want to get at least one scholarship funded next year. Um, so I'm going to be trying to book a lot of speaking and picking picking up some uh, some clients and and trying to make it happen. Thank you so much for coming on, and I wish you all the best. I look forward to to staying in touch and seeing how we can continue to innovate in in the behavioral health space. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds podcast. If you want to look into more of Ben's work, I've put the links in the description of this episode. And if you want to keep the conversation going with myself, as always, I encourage you to send me an email. My email is always in the description of all of these episodes. Just click that email, send me your thoughts. Love to keep the conversation going. And most importantly, thank you for listening. I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds podcast. We'll talk again soon.